Hey skeptics, it's Juliana here. Just a warning before we get into today's podcast. Today's podcast discusses the history of Indigenous Australians and contains some language from historical documents which is no longer appropriate and may be considered offensive. Where possible, I've tried to remove this language, but in the interest of preserving the integrity of the quotes, in some cases it has had to remain. Please listen with caution. Thank you. Hello skeptics and welcome to one of the most controversial dates on the Australian calendar, the 26th of January, Australia Day, Invasion Day and arbitrary date that everybody likes to argue over, whatever it happens to be for anyone, I can guarantee you it will spark discussion, debate and unfortunately vicious racism and bigoted attacks. This year, though, Australia Day got really interesting because two of the large supermarkets here, Woolworths and Aldi, announced that they would cease selling Australia Day merchandise as it was no longer profitable for them. Australian Federal Opposition Leader Peter Dutton called on Australians to boycott Woolworths. He has not yet mentioned Aldi. And threw out that catch-all conservative term for a business doing something they don't agree with. Dutton accused Woolworths of going woke. Really original, Mr. Opposition Leader. Like, really, really original. There's been screeching in the usual dark corners of the internet about how without Australian flag bucket hats and thongs, that is flip-flops and jandals for my international listeners, or green and gold beach cricket sets, Australia Day will wither away and die. No word yet on whether those screaming into the void have actually ever bought any of this merchandise. And given most of it's made offshore, there's not really much about it that I think is honestly Australian. But if these people really want something, I'm pretty sure they could find a pair of Australian flag thongs or a bucket hat online. And as for boycotting a major supermarket chain, given the state the economy is in right now and the limited options for Australians who need to put food on the table in 2024, that's not happening. But what is it about January 26th that gets people so hot under the collar? It's only been a public holiday since 1994 after all, although it has been recognised for longer. And should it really be so surprising that it means different things to different people? Holidays always do. And it's also not surprising that there are people who object to its significance and they do so for a number of reasons. January 26th is a day of mourning for Indigenous Australians, for instance. It symbolises loss and the deadly effects of colonisation on their lands, language, culture and communities. Others object because neither Captain Cook nor the First Fleet, those titans of white Australian mythology, actually first landed in New South Wales on the 26th of January, something we're going to examine shortly and in more detail. But before we begin our investigation into the 26th, I'm going to put a question out there that I want you to reflect on. Does a date related to the founding of a penal settlement have any significance to modern-day Australia or Australian values? And a second question, has our so-called National Day come about because of an ahistorical romanticisation regarding transportation and the convict era. I'm Juliana, and you're listening to a special bonus episode of The Skeptical Historian Writes a Thesis.
Hello again, my sceptical friends, and welcome to this special bonus Australia Day episode. Time to stick the 26th. I want to start, as I always do, by acknowledging that I am podcasting today on the sovereign and unceded lands of the Wurundjeri and Watharong people. I acknowledge their connection to country, and especially on this day, I acknowledge their resilience, their survival, and the ongoing fight of all Indigenous people for proper recognition as the first Australians. They were here long before the sails of the first fleet ever appeared over the horizon. They were also here long before that most controversial of British explorers, Commander James Cook, he was actually never a captain, interesting fact I just recently learned, saw what was then known to Europeans as Terra Australia Incognita, or Unknown Southern Land. Importantly for our story, he wasn't the first European to see it either. In 1606, Dutch explorer William Janszoon is believed to have been the first European to officially land on what would eventually be called Australia, and which the Dutch called New Holland. He charted parts of the north coast, including the eastern coast of the Gulf of Carpentaria, famous from the Birkenwill story. And given that the Dutch had a colony in modern-day Indonesia, which was then the Dutch East Indies, it's not surprising that they were aware before the rest of Europe exactly where Australia was. Over the next century, Dutch explorers continued to sail Australia's coasts and mapped much of the northern, western and southern coastlines. There's some evidence of ad hoc settlement, mostly by shipwreck crews, and plenty of Dutch sailors met their death prowling the northern and western coasts, hoping for a ship to take them back to the Dutch East Indies and then home to the Netherlands. James Cook was the first European to chart the east coast of Australia and to give it the name New South Wales, but he got there because of detailed maps of Dutch marinas a century earlier. He landed in Botany Bay on the 29th of April 1770, and he first named the area Stingray Harbour. The indigenous people of that area called it Kamei, and Cook and his crew spent eight days replenishing their supplies before he continued on his voyage and eventually back to London. He never returned to the east coast of Australia and he wasn't involved with the penal settlement that followed 18 years later. Interestingly though, prior to the 1930s, Cook's landing in Botany Bay was seen as a better date to celebrate Australia's National Day than the 26th of January, which was very much associated with convict stain. It wouldn't be until 1935 that the 26th was settled on by all the states as Australia Day. And in a twist which shows just how problematic the so-called taint of Australia's convict past was in the early 20th century, the celebrations on the 26th avoided any mention that convicts had been on the first fleet and focused instead on Arthur Phillip, who was the first governor of New South Wales, his administrators, the Royal Marines, and a few free settlers and their servants who had come over from Britain to start the new colony. The fact that these servants were unpaid penal labour was not mentioned and Australia did not begin to seriously consider its convict origins until the 1970s. By the time the bicentenary rolled around in 1988, Australia was looking back at its convict past through rose-coloured glasses so thick we could barely see them at all. So now that we know who's who in the European settlement of Australia, 
I'm going to take a break and when I get back, we're going to do some myth busting about an Australia Day post that has been doing the rounds on Facebook. And I'm back. Now, in the lead up to Australia Day this year, a post started making its way around social media, especially Facebook. Now, it's quite long, but I am going to quote it in full and then we're going to fact check it. So here we go. And I quote, Captain Cook in the First Fleet. Captain Cook landed in Sydney on the 28th of April 1770 and claimed the east coast of the Australian continent for Britain, naming it New South Wales. The first boat of the First Fleet landed at Botany Bay on the 18th of January 1788, but the fleet then moved to Port Jackson, what became Sydney. The Naming of Australia January 1st, 1900 was not the day that Australia was named. It was the day that the Commonwealth of Australia was formed by the Federation of Six British Colonies, New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, South Australia, Western Australia and Tasmania, or Van Diemen's Land. The name Australia was derived from the Latin word Australius, meaning southern, and was used to refer to a hypothetical landmass in the South Pole known as Terra Australis. The name Australia was first suggested by the English explorer Matthew Flinders in 1804, who circumnavigated the continent and drew a map of it. He preferred the name Australia over New Holland, which was the name given by the Dutch in the 17th century. The name Australia was officially adopted by the British Admiralty in 1824 and was used in British legislation in 1828. The name the Commonwealth of Australia was formalised by the Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act 1900 which was passed by the UK Parliament. January 1st, 1901 was the day that the Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act 1900 came into effect. Indigenous Australians never had a name for their country. There were several hundred separate tribes, most of which had their own language. The only names were the Aboriginal names for their various regions, roughly defined as their hunting grounds, which were vigorously defended from invasion by neighbouring tribes. January 26th. The relevance of January 26th is when the National Citizenship Act 1948 was proclaimed. This was the first day we all became Australians. Before that, all citizens, including Aboriginals born after 1921, were called British subjects. Prior to this time, the various British colonies in Australia all had their own Australia Day, which was celebrated on a range of dates. The excuses for calling Australia Day, 26th January, Invasion Day, based on the supposition that the date was either Captain Cook's first landing or the arrival of the First Fleet, are simply wrong. Conclusion. The 26th of January is a great day for all of us. It is the day that Australians receive their citizenship, the day which celebrates the implementation of the Nationality and Citizenship Act of 1948, when we all became Australians in our own right, an act giving freedom and protection to all Australians, old and new, the right to live under the protection of Australian law as a united nation. Now, this annual date for a national celebration each year on January 26th is important. So let's just celebrate the day for what it is. The fact that we are all Australians in our own right. <sighs> that ends the post and the quote. And on the surface, it seems to make some sensible or at the very least reasonable arguments. However, its claims are built on shaky foundations and wouldn't take much more than a breeze to blow it over. Given we have already looked at Captain Cook before the break, I'm going to start with the claim 
that the first boat of the first fleet landed at Botany Bay on the 18th of January 1788, but the fleet then later moved to Port Jackson, what became Sydney. Now, I do want to note for my listeners that what became Sydney is a direct quote, I would say, which later became Sydney. Now, this claim is true. Arthur Phillip, on board the ship's supply, reached Botany Bay on the 18th of January 1788, and the rest of the first fleet landed over the next two days. However, it quickly became apparent that Botany Bay was not an appropriate place for a settlement. Cook had described the area in glowing terms... But he and his men had only stayed there eight days and they hadn't been assessing the area as a suitable site for a colony. There was very little fresh water, the soil was too poor to grow crops and when the convicts tried to cut down the trees to build huts for the governor and his administration, their tools wore out and broke. The Aurora people, the indigenous people of that area, were curious but unhappy that another band of strange pale people had landed on their shores and were even more alarmed when it became apparent that these people intended to stay. On the 21st of January 1788, Philip and some of his more trustworthy men set sail in a small boat and moved up the coast, searching for a better site to establish the penal colony. Port Jackson, which Cook had named but not sailed into, was explored by the men and they found it to be a much more suitable site for their penal colony. The bay was better protected, it was deep enough for their ships to anchor, there was fresh water and early tests of the soil showed it would probably support crops. They returned to Botany Bay on the 23rd and after spending three days or so packing up, probably to the fury of the convicts and the marines who would have had to do all the work loading and unloading the ships, they sailed for Port Jackson on the 26th and landed there that same day. Philip named the settlement Sydney And Port Jackson today is known as Sydney Harbour. So, yeah, it's true that Philip and the First Fleet made landfall on the 18th, but they quickly abandoned their settlement at Botany Bay and moved north. They landed and began to establish a permanent settlement on the 26th. Remember that because it will become important as we move on in our fact-checking journey. I've already discussed the name given to Australia by Europeans, so I won't go deep into that here. Australia and Australian were in use long before the 20th century rolled around, although prior to Federation, which occurred in 1901, after passing the Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act 1900, people living here generally identified themselves by the colony they lived in, so they were a Victorian, a Queenslander, a New South Welshman, etc., or even more commonly by the country of their own birth or of their parents' birth. You only have to look at the number of young, mostly Australian-born men who volunteered to fight for king and country in the First World War to see how strong the pull of Britain remained to Australians for many years, even those Australians who had never been there before. It wouldn't be until the 1950s that Australia really started to sever the apron strings with Britain And people started to see themselves first and foremost as Australian rather than British. The point in the post about Indigenous Australians not having a name for the country and only having names for their hunting grounds or local areas is both arrogantly expressed and completely untrue. The continent of Australia as a single country was a British concept, which was adopted by the convicts and early colonists as they spread out across the continent. To the Indigenous people, Australia was, 
to use an imperfect comparison, much like Europe with lots of smaller countries on one big continent. They did have their own languages, customs, cultures and sacred places, but they also knew about other places, the other countries, for lack of a better word, and they had names for those places too. Their worlds were not confined or constrained by the boundaries of their tribal lands and the suggestion made that the only time tribes ever came together was to fight each other over the best hunting grounds is ignorant and I actually think it's quite offensive as well. There certainly would have been armed clashes and wars over resources. I mean, humans still fight over these things today. But there was also complex trade into marriages, large gatherings of different people for special festivals, or sometimes simply to thrash out tribal borders to avoid wars. Again, I think parallels can be drawn with European society, especially high society, where princesses and eldest daughters were married away to secure peace. Trade between different countries, even nominal enemies, was the norm, and travel between different places was both frequent and encouraged. One needed permission to cross the border and there might be a toll or a tax to be paid, but it could be done and people knew how to do it. The same type of thing occurred among Indigenous Australians. Each tribe had their own customs and people could enter each other's tribal lands as long as they sought permission and paid the toll. The British and European colonists ignored all the signs of this complex civilised society they came across for two reasons. The first reason was because it suited them. And the second reason was because the people weren't white. Racist pseudosciences like eugenics didn't have an official name in 1788 and the obscene concept of social Darwinism wouldn't arrive for another hundred years or so. But the actions that would later prop up these ideas were already very much in force when the British made their way to Australia. Now, this feels like another pretty good spot for a break, so stick around and I'll be back shortly. And here I am back again. So we've examined the ideas around Captain Cook, the First Fleet, the dates of landing and the names, both European and Indigenous, for the many areas of Australia. So now let's examine the next part of this post, which deals with the 26th of January. I'll reread it for those who need a refresher. January 26th. The relevance of January 26th is when the National Citizenship Act 1948 was proclaimed. This was the first day we all became Australians. Before that, all citizens, including Aboriginal people born after 1921, were called British subjects. Prior to this time, the various British colonies in Australia all had their own Australia Day, which was celebrated on a range of dates. An interesting point, but let's break it down. The National Citizenship Act 1948 was proclaimed, that is, made law, on the 26th of January 1949. It is also true that before this act, there was no such thing as an Australian citizen. Everyone born or naturalised in any of the Australian states was a British subject and anyone who needed to travel was issued with a British passport. But... Being part of the British Empire posed some self-inflicted challenges for Australia. At the time of Federation in 1901, Britain had the largest territorial empire in the world. A quarter of the world was British and more than 400 million people lived under some form of British rule. 
the white colonies and dominions, so for example Australia, New Zealand or Canada, were allowed their own governments and to create their own laws. While colonies such as India, Nigeria and Ghana, and these last two had different names at the time, were ruled by various forms of despotic British administrations and the local people had no say in government. And despite being nominally British subjects and therefore entitled to certain rights and protections, anyone of colour in the British Empire was absolutely second class. But let us return now to Australia, specifically in 1901, when the colonies federated. That is, they all came together as one union and became states of Australia rather than individual colonies. One of the first bills passed by the new Australian federal government was the Immigration Restriction Act 1901, colloquially known as the White Australia Policy, although that was a suite of policies rather than one individual act. Attorney General and future Prime Minister Alfred Deakin made no bones about what it was the act was supposed to do. And I quote, Put in plain and unequivocal terms, it means the prohibition of all alien coloured immigration, and more, it means at the earliest time, by reasonable and just means, the deportation or reduction of the number of aliens now in our midst. These two things go hand in hand and are the necessary complements of a single policy, the policy of securing a white Australia. The racist dream of white Australia was certainly not new in 1901, but efforts to curb non-white immigration had been difficult prior to Federation. The Australian colonies, as they were then, were British territories, so British colonies, and the people there were British subjects, which meant anyone from anywhere in the British Empire was entitled to settle there. It also meant that British immigration laws, which were surprisingly liberal at this time, at least they were on paper, prevailed in the colonies and they couldn't stop migrants from coming overseas or from outside the British Empire, especially from places where Britain had trade agreements. Now, Chinese immigrants in particular were seen as a huge problem by early Australians and they had been coming in large numbers to all colonies during the gold rushes between 1850 and 1870 for exactly the same reasons Europeans came. Now, Britain had forced a free trade agreement on China and was effectively occupying many of the major Chinese cities at this point. So Chinese immigration was allowed to Britain and the British colonies. Now, white immigrants in Australia hated them for the following reasons. Because they weren't white. They weren't Christian. They didn't speak English. They didn't dress the way Europeans did. They didn't eat the same food. And their work ethic often meant they were successful where Europeans failed. And that annoyed the white population. This last one in particular called into question their ideas about their own superiority. And they frequently resorted to violence to drive the Chinese out of their communities. Besides the Chinese, other immigrant groups that were despised were, well, I have to be honest, anyone who wasn't white. While the idea that whiteness was the universal default was only just beginning to take off in the 1850s, the colonies had tried everything they could think of to prevent anyone they considered coloured from getting in, which effectively meant anyone who wasn't from the British Isles Sometimes this included the Irish, but sometimes immigration restrictions applied to them too. 
or anyone who wasn't from Canada, the United States, or acceptable countries in Western Europe. What was an acceptable Western European country changed depending on the government views and the geopolitical situation at the time. But the real problem for pre-Federation Australia's desire to be a nation of strictly white immigrants was that the British Empire was huge, it was cosmopolitan, and the majority of its subjects were not white. One British colony could not legally stop immigrants from another coming to their shores because everyone was a British subject and entitled to travel within the British Empire. But by federating and becoming a dominion of the British Empire rather than a colony, Australia would be entitled to make its own immigration laws. Suddenly it wouldn't matter whether someone was a subject of the British Empire or not or what Britain's immigration laws were or who she had special free trade agreements with. It would be up to the Australian government if someone could enter and, more tellingly, under what circumstances they could stay. Now, if Alfred Deakin and his ilk had had their way, Every single person in the newly federated country who was not a white British-born subject or the child of such a person or people would have been promptly thrown out, but this was impractical. Arguments ran through the Australian courts for decades on how best to define who was white, and I won't go into it here, but the mental gymnastics are mind-boggling, let alone the overt racism. Instead, the government looked forward and focused on keeping non-English-speaking immigrants out by means of a dictation test. If they wanted you, you would be given the test in a language you understood, probably English. If they didn't want you, they'd give you a test in a language you didn't understand, and when you failed, they'd deport you. I've got an episode on the dictation test coming up soon, actually, so stay tuned. I'll go into a lot more detail then. So... What does all this have to do with the Citizenship Act and Australia Day? Well, quite a lot, actually. The Dictation Test and the Immigration Restriction Act continued until 1958, a full decade after the Citizenship Act was enforced. Immigration in the period after the Second World War boomed and the Citizenship Act, far from being an inclusive document, was a rather sinister way of keeping the dream of white Australia alive, especially because the British Empire was beginning to crumble at this time. Under the terms of the Act, all Australian-born and other British subjects resident in Australia for five years prior to January 26, 1949, were automatically Australian citizens. Anyone born in Australia on or after that date was automatically an Australian citizen. Anyone defined as an Australian citizen also became or retained the status of British subject. It also ensured that the process of gaining citizenship was easier for British subjects than it was for those immigrating from elsewhere. Given that the empire was crumbling and independence movements in places like India were taking hold or had already succeeded, this actually suited Australia's interests at the time. By 1949, the majority of British subjects who could easily travel, and that is an important point, were white, and Australia was happy to have them. Other post-war immigrants had to go through a deliberately long bureaucratic process. They had the right to live and work in Australia, but by not becoming citizens, they could be deported at any time by the government and didn't have the same rights and legal protections as citizens or even British subjects. 
It was a win-win for Australia's insanely racist policies at the time. Now, after talking about all that racism, I need another break. But don't go anywhere. We'll have a look at the second part of this claim about the 26th of January when I get back. And here I am. Now, reading the Facebook post makes it sound as if January 26th was chosen for Australia Day because that's the day the Citizenship Act was proclaimed. In fact, it was the other way around. The Citizenship Act was proclaimed on the 26th of January because that was the date we'd been celebrating Australia Day since 1935. The Australian government thought it would be a good idea to proclaim the citizenship law that day to give it some patriotic flair. So what's the deal with the claim in the post that prior to this, that is prior to the Citizenship Act of 1948, which of course was enacted in 1949, that each state had been celebrating Australia Day on different days? Well, it's one of those claims that is technically true but ultimately misleading. I can't say whether it's misinformation or disinformation, but either way, it gives a false impression. Prior to 1935, when all states agreed to celebrate Australia Day on the 26th of January, the different states had celebrated their foundation on different days. Now, the original author of this post would probably argue that because 1935 was prior to 1949, It's not a lie to use the phrase and say that prior to 1949, there was no national consensus about the date of Australia Day. Honestly, again, it's one of those things you might find on a list of top 50 technically true statements on a clickbait site. The fact that Australia has only been celebrating Australia Day nationally since 1935 raises another interesting question about the date A movement which has been gaining momentum over the years is Change the Date, which argues that the 26th is not a day for all Australians and we can find a better national day. Those who argue for keeping the 26th often counter that we deserve to celebrate who we are as Australians and I couldn't agree more with that. But what does modern Australia have to do with a British penal colony settled more than 200 years ago? Modern Australia is a wonderful place. It's certainly got its problems. I'm not going to pretend it's some kind of utopia. But why does our nationality have to link back to the first permanent settlement at Sydney? Why have we chosen to intrinsically link everything that's good about modern Australia with the British? Why is that the most important event in our history? The convicts, soldiers, marines and administrators who landed in Sydney didn't come to build a modern state. They came to establish a giant open-air prison to exile people from everything they had ever known for committing crimes like stealing a length of lace or taking a few pairs of shoes. And despite the mythology around convicts in the early penal colony, the vast majority of these people were not glamorous highwaymen or fiery political prisoners struggling against the British yoke. They were poor, they were starving, and they had committed extremely petty crimes in an attempt to eat, to pay rent, and to look after their families. Today, most of them would be moved into diversion programs or offered some kind of support. And, you know, just 20 years after transportation had been established... The head of the colonial office in London was howling to Parliament that conditions in Australia, or New South Wales as it was then, 
were too comfortable and transportation needed to be a fate worse than death. If that isn't proof that the British administration didn't want to build Australia, then I really don't know what is. They wanted to build a hell with which they could frighten their poor into submission and get them to accept the way of the world as it was. Modern Australia was not built by those people. It was built by those ex-convicts who managed to find a way to support themselves in free society, which actually did everything it could to exclude them and erase them from colonial history, and those free settlers who, despite the protestations of the colonial office, began to create a place they wanted to live. Of course, people were already living there. The Indigenous people of Australia, who had continuously inhabited the continent and its many countries for 65,000 years and lived as part of a complex, multifaceted society, were supposedly under the protection of their new king from the moment Arthur Philip landed in Botany Bay. Now, it goes without saying that the Indigenous people didn't need the King of England and they didn't want him either. They had their own hierarchies and system of government. Being infantilised as second-class citizens in their own country was not a fate they meekly accepted. The violence of the settlers and the centuries-long frontier wars between the Indigenous people trying to protect their land and way of life is very well documented. I know I've recommended it before, but if you want more information, I suggest watching The Australian Wars, which is available for free on SBS On Demand. For many Indigenous people, the 26th, the day that permanent British settlement began in Australia, is a day of mourning. It is the day their home was invaded and the start of more than 100 years of rape and murder accompanied by policies which broke up their families and denied thousands of Indigenous people their culture. All done so that white settlers could make themselves rich and establish British rule in the Southern Ocean. And yes, like the post says, the Indigenous people technically were British subjects in the eyes of the law prior to the Citizenship Act. But as we've seen, the privileges and rights of British subjects belonged to white British subjects only. Indigenous Australians were not explicitly excluded from the Citizenship Act, so they technically became Australian citizens on the 26th of January 1949, but nothing changed for them. They were still explicitly excluded from voting, which is a key component of citizenship. They weren't counted in the census, their children were still being stolen, and they were being forced to work in menial jobs for low wages where they were frequently abused, had their wages withheld, and had no recourse against poor treatment by their employers. This doesn't sound like something that governments are supposed to allow to happen to their citizens. If you're interested in finding out more, I'd actually recommend the documentary Servant or Slave, which is also available through SBS On Demand, which examines the reality for Indigenous Australians in this system through the eyes of five Indigenous women who share their stories of being stolen, being sent to convent schools to train as domestic servants and the abuse they endured throughout their lives. Now, it wouldn't be until 1962 that Indigenous Australians were allowed to vote and they were not counted in the census until 1967. It also wouldn't be until 1967 that the individual states lost their ability to create special laws for Indigenous Australians living in their state which they had used since settlement to cause harm to these populations and to privilege the white settlers. 
Now, discrimination against Indigenous Australians didn't magically stop when they achieved full citizenship rights in 1967, of course. And it seems to me that the Citizenship Act was just another thing that happened on the 26th of January, which demonstrated to the Indigenous people how much white Australia really, really didn't want them. So with this in mind, we come to the next point of the post, the claim that the excuses for calling Australia Day, 26 January, Invasion Day, based on the supposition that the date was either Captain Cook's first landing or the arrival of the first fleet, are simply wrong. (coughs) Whoever wrote this original post has a wonderful way with words, I'll give them that. And they're very good at writing technically true statements. Invasion Day or a day of mourning are common terms given to the 26th by Indigenous Australians and they've been doing so for a long time. Now the author of this post is correct, as we've seen, to say that neither Captain Cook nor the First Fleet made first landfall on the 26th of January. But as we've also discovered, 26th of January was the date that the first permanent British settlement was established in New South Wales. It was the beginning of the invasion. It was the first time land was permanently taken from the Indigenous inhabitants. They could no longer access part of the coast they had used for millennia for fishing and hunting. Plants and trees they needed for food, shelter and medicine were being removed and sheep and cattle were being set loose in their hunting grounds, which quickly polluted drinking water and drove out the native animals, such as the kangaroos, wallabies and most native birds that the Indigenous people relied on. When they hunted the sheep, which were on their land, they were shot or hanged by the settlers for theft. So, okay, if we're using the term Invasion Day to refer to Captain Cook or the First Fleet's initial landfall, sure, it's wrong. But using it to refer to the day the invasion of Australia began, which was the 26th of January 1788, well, that seems pretty reasonable to me. I'm going to take another break here and when I come back we're going to have a look at the conclusion of the post and then, like the good historians we are, we're going to summarise our findings. Stick around. Hello again my friends and I hope you're ready to examine the conclusion of this rather flimsy pseudo-historical post. If you need a refresher though, I'm going to read the conclusion out now before we jump in. Conclusion. The 26th of January is a great day for all of us. It is the day that Australians receive their citizenship, the day which celebrates the implementation of the Nationality and Citizenship Act of 1948 when we all became Australians in our own right, an act giving freedom and protection to all Australians, old and new, the right to live under the protection of Australian law as a united nation. Now, this annual date for a national celebration each year on January 26th is important. So let's just celebrate the day for what it is, the fact that we are Australians in our own right. As discussed above, the Citizenship Act was proclaimed on the 26th of January because that was the date Australia Day was being celebrated and had been celebrated for almost 15 years at that point. Some states were still celebrating their individual foundation days, but the 26th of January was, by 1949, very much recognised by all the states. The passing of the Citizenship Act was a major historical event, but it was also a way to try and keep Australia white in response to the crumbling of the British Empire and the massive movement of all kinds of people into the country after the Second World War. 
While the Immigration Restriction Act and the Dictation Test were abolished in 1958, the suite of acts which made up the White Australia policy would not be repealed entirely until 1975 with the introduction of the Racial Discrimination Act by the Whitlam government. On paper, while the Citizenship Act gave freedom and protection to all Australians, old and new, and the right to live under the protection of Australian law as a united nation, in reality who could become an Australian, was heavily restricted. Indigenous people were technically citizens, but had none of the rights of white Australian citizens and could still be lawfully discriminated against. The Act did not, as implied by the Post, make everyone present in Australia Australians in our own right. And the original text of the Act clearly spelled out that Australian citizens were still British subjects, which was an important qualification for a land where most of the white population, even if they'd been born in that country, still felt that their first loyalty was and should be to the empire. So, to summarise all the half-truths, technically correct statements, and in at least one case, downright offensive lies in this post, I think we'd say this. Captain Cook was the first European to sail the east coast of Australia and briefly landed there, although made no attempt to form a permanent settlement. However, the Indigenous Australians did not want him or his men there either, and there was aggression between the two groups. The first fleet attempted to land at Botany Bay on the 18th of January 1788, but found it not suitable, and the first permanent British settlement in Australia began on the 26th of January that same year. The Indigenous people, who had been living on the continent for 65,000 years and had a range of names for the many parts of the country, along with laws, customs and a sophisticated, highly developed culture, were wary of these newcomers and hostilities quickly began when it became apparent that the British had launched an invasion and were intending to take their land. This pattern continued as the British and their descendants pushed further into the continent despite constant contact with Indigenous Australians, both peacefully and violently. The British created the myth of Australia as an empty land and colonised it accordingly. Indigenous people only ever had the same rights as other British subjects on paper and were treated like people of colour all over the British Empire, as second-class citizens who needed to be removed and contained for the benefit of the white race. Prior to 1935, the different colonies and then states celebrated their individual foundation days, if you will, at different times, and some continued to do so after 1935. But from the 26th of January 1935, all states recognised what became known as Australia Day. Indigenous Australians organised counter-demonstrations and declared that the 26th was a day of mourning and the start of the British invasion of their homelands. Over time, the Day of Mourning became known as Invasion Day and was not linked to Captain Cook or the initial landfall of the First Fleet, but to the date of permanent European settlement in Australia. When the Citizenship Act came into force in 1949, Australia Day was chosen as the day to proclaim it to give it a patriotic flair. Australia frequently and deliberately created policies to try and prevent non-white immigration and, after Federation, was able to implement the White Australia policy. The Citizenship Act was an attempt to maintain White Australia in the face of a crumbling British Empire, and the Act specified that Australian citizens were still, first and foremost, British subjects. While Indigenous people were not specifically excluded from the Act, 
and technically became Australian citizens, they were deliberately and systematically excluded from the privileges and protections citizenship was supposed to offer. Their status as second-class citizens and members of what was considered a dying race did not begin to change until the early 1960s. And in conclusion for our summary, there is still further work to be done into 2024. So now let's go back to the question that started this episode. The title, should we stick the 26th? Is it time for a new day? We've changed the date before after all and is the 26th really a date that is compatible with modern Australian values? I don't think it is. I think it's a rotten day to be celebrating what it means to be Australian. It's a day that remembers the start of a brutal invasion of sovereign nations and the attempted destruction of complex cultures and societies. It suggests that the best thing about being Australian is that the British came here, bringing their prisoners who had committed barely any crime to slowly build a nation which made every attempt to bury its past and present itself as the lily-white child of empire. I think it's a historical event that should be acknowledged, of course, the landing of the First Fleet, but is it something to celebrate? Is it what makes us Australian? No, it's not. And the Citizenship Act did neither, by the way. It was a sneaky way to try and reinforce the white Australia policy, and it did nothing to improve the lot of Indigenous Australians or wind back almost 200 years of discriminatory laws against them. It also ensured that Australia was still seen as a loyal subject of the empire, making sure that British immigrants had an easier path to citizenship than everyone else. But if we do stick the 26th, what day should we pick instead? After all, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a day to celebrate what makes us great as a nation. But I'd like a day for all Australians, for old and new, for citizens and non-citizens, for everybody who calls this country home. Lots of days have been suggested, but my recommendation is the 11th of June. Why? Because that was the day in 1975 the Racial Discrimination Act was passed. It was the day that the last remnants of the exclusionary, racist and cruel white Australia policies were swept aside and the privileges and protections of Australian law were applied to everybody, regardless of race. Isn't that something worth celebrating? Something that made us strong as a nation? I think so. At the very least, it's better than an arbitrary date in January with no real relevance to anything that makes modern Australia the country it is today. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening to this special bonus episode of The Skeptical Historian Writes a Thesis. Regular programming will continue as usual with new episodes released every second Tuesday and available wherever you get your favourite shows. If you want to get in touch with me, you can head to my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. I'm not interested in spammy messages asking, would you like to increase your following? Don't bother. You can also get in touch with me on social media. I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Again, none of those messages. I'm not going to reply to you. I'm not interested. But join me next time for another skeptical take on the mystery that is history. Bye now.
The Skeptical Historian is research produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in my research by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects are by Adobe Creative Cloud, Pixabay and Epidemic Sound, used under the appropriate licence. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was also used appropriately. Podcast hosting is by RSS.com. See you next time, skeptics.